We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes, the details details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Don Palumbo. Jonah Lanto. You gave me the Jonah bumps that time. Good. Those are all... Good. Goosebumps for. It's just he, he gets them so often Frequently. that we've named them after him. Because I'm just vibing everywhere I yeah, go. Yeah, you are. So you're, you're feeling it. It happens. Feeling. Do it. people do people still say that? I don't think so, but I do. I do. Well, here we are at DCR Brewing, one of my favorite places to be. Thank you, everyone, for being with us this evening, and a big thank you to DCR. And uh, well, we have an extra special thank you, of course. But uh, and and the reason is because tonight is extra special. I'd like to think so. It's the first ever release of a Midwest murder beer, and it's just really cool to partner with DCR to give back to the community of Fargo. Again, purchases from the proceeds of Crime of Passion fruit made by DCR will benefit the Rape and Abuse Crisis Center, and we really couldn't do that without our fans and listeners, so we appreciate you guys for making this happen and giving us the opportunity to give back. It's it's, it's really cool, and again, a huge shout out to Sam Kaur at DCR. We can't say enough for what he's done for us as a partner in Fargo and for partnering with us and being willing to put himself on the line to make this beer. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, DCR. Thank you to you guys. You. And it's delicious too. It's pretty damn I, good. I like, I, I like it. I can say that because I had nothing to do with it. Otherwise, you know, if I had made it, then it'd be like, oh, it's delicious. Well, if I don't say so myself, it's actually really good. Completely unbiased opinion. <laughs> it, it is. It, yeah. it really is. It really is. I didn't even help name it. But that's pretty, pretty rad. So thank you, of course, to all of those who have rated and reviewed our little podcast here. We greatly appreciate it. And it does big things for us because we live and die by an algorithm. So when you rate us, when you review us, it just gives us a little extra push and uh, and we we appreciate it. So, Jonah, what are people saying about Midwest murder? I like when you say, uh, thanks for reviewing our little podcast. We're so tiny. But no, we're, we're a big deal, Don Palumbo. Well, they call they call Reno the little the biggest little, the biggest little yeah. city in the thing. So hey, so we do appreciate it. those reviews. They keep us motivated, and it, it really helps us get a little bit more recognition out there. So it's appreciated when you take time out of your busy lives just to spend thirty seconds saying, "Hey, I appreciate what you guys do at Midwest Murder." This one comes from Nodak Bell, five stars, better than caffeine. Whoa, whoa. Very, very little is better than caffeine. I just, I appreciate that a lot, but let's, let's take it down a notch. Better than caffeine. Working night shifts in a hospital, you have to get creative with how you keep awake if your patients are sleeping. This podcast does just that. So incredibly researched, produced, and recorded. Highly recommend. Cool. Thank you. I think it's and to be compared cool. to caffeine, that's pretty rad. I'm, it, it, I'm okay it, it, with it's, that. it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, caf- it's caffeine and then beer and then Midwest murder. Though, let's just be clear, we're third in the list. <laughs> and I, I like that she brought out the production because that just 
everybody appreciates like the details and the stories, but the production right. doesn't get talked about maybe quite enough. And my my little heart for our little podcast feels good about that little comment. You're something else. From ND296, five stars. I always liked it, but after attending the live show at the Luft, I appreciate it and I love it so much more. Seeing JND interact not only with each other, but with the audience and seeing their personalities made me realize just how special they are. I recommended it before, but now I highly recommend. If you can catch it live, do it. Keep it up, guys. I'm a fan. Well, thank you, because I was on one that night. I was, uh, I was, I was, I was fighting you. I was ready to fight you. Don, Don, I'm super feisty Palumbo. Uh, That's, that's really what they call her out there in the wild. So if you ever see her out there, you'll know. Yes. I have so many nicknames. I have no idea what to answer to. Yes. You don't, you don't call me anything. All right. Well. So let's uh, let's let's get rolling. Oh wait, wait we have, we have other things. We yeah. have other you can, things to you can, say. You can buy us a hot dish. You yeah. can support the show financially if you would like at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Midwest Murder. What does that it, do? It does. It, it just you know what? It helps us pay for case files. It helps us when we have to get stuck in hotels and different things like that. So this, you know, it helps us keep the lights it, on. It does keeps the studio yeah. moving. Yeah. So it's a lot of help. It's it's a lot of help if you want to help out. Buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. We also have merch. I see some merch out there in the so audience exciting. tonight. That's really cool so to see. And you can find that at tpublic.com slash stores slash Midwest Murder. And just, hey, a suggestion. If you're a longtime listener or you ever hear us utter a phrase that you think is hilarious that belongs on a T-shirt, let us know and, and we'll put it on there. That, that very T-shirt right there yes. came for the Midwest, stayed for the murder. That's a, that's a fan phrase that, that we implemented. So yeah. really cool to see that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. The year was 2005. American President George Bush began his second term with Vice President Dick Cheney. The 77th Academy Awards were hosted by Chris Rock, and he wasn't, uh, he did not, uh, he wasn't slapped by Will Smith. So that's nice. Well, and would anybody have talked about it back then without social media anyways? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I would have made the big ones maybe, but not the, not social media. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. And then you've got you know, this guy's team, Will, this guy's team, Chris, and this guy's keep your, my wife's name out your mouth. I don't know. It was anyway, fascinating stuff. Million dollar baby won best picture and best director that year. Side note, really disliked that movie. I really disliked it. Oh, man. But Clint Eastwood was the director. Charlize so. Theron, my favorite actress. No, no. way. That, that wasn't Million Dollar Baby. No. Sorry. That was she, Hillary Swank. Yeah, that yeah. was uh, yeah. the monster. My oh, bad. yeah. That was different. Yeah. BTK killer Dennis Rader was arrested in Wichita, Kansas, 31 years after his first murder. Teen Jeff Weiss killed seven people at the Red Lake Senior High School and also killed his grandfather and his grandfather's girlfriend, then turned the gun on himself. In federal charges, Angela Johnson was the first woman in 50 years uh, to be sentenced to the death penalty in Iowa. And it's mine. You can't have that one. I'm doing it. Oh, you're calling dibs on that story? I am. I am. It's, a, it's oh. an interesting one. I just put in a request for the documents. I'm going to beat you to it. Sorry. Whatever. Good luck. They're federal. You won't find them. The topic of personal medical directives became a hot-button issue and certainly raised awareness with a dispute uh, over Terry Schiavo. Terry had been in a vegetative state since 1990. While her husband tried to remove the feeding tube, her family fought to have it reinserted, and eventually it came to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals who refused to stop the euthanasia on March 23rd of that year. She died on March 31st, a little over a week later. Do you remember that? I, I do, and I remember it because it was the moment I decided I would want to be unplugged. I just right, I, it, but I, that's but that it brought so that's what I mean by yeah. it bringing so much uh, awareness. 
John Roberts and Samuel Alito were nominated and confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court that year. And there were hurricanes aplenty in 2005. There were four Category 5 hurricanes. Of course, we remember Katrina and, and also Rita, and then Emily and Wilma. But there were 15 in total that year, which was a record high. You were dressed like a meteorologist last night. You should uh, you should have told that one. I'm uh, Jonah the Meteorologist Lanto. Oh my gosh. I've got nicknames too. And you, you do. You gave them yourself, so that means you're extra cool. Uh, he was wearing shorts and his uh, suit coat. And I'm like, what are you, a meteorologist or something? Like, come on. It's, you're doing the weather? Like, waste well, up, up, please. Up here behind the table, it's just from the jacket up. I, I need some, yeah. No? Oh, okay. Uh, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, my personal favorite, was released to theaters. And Reddit also launched that year. The Office debuted on NBC. Fever Pitch was released after having to re-record the ending when the greatest baseball team of all time, the Boston Red Sox, broke the curse and won the World Series in 2004. I think we can all agree that there was a purpose that I, I put that in there for. Civil rights activist Rosa Parks died in Detroit at age 92. She was the first woman to lie in honor in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. And I don't always put deaths in this section, uh, but 2005 was, was absolutely a notable year. To name a few, Chris Ledoux. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit Johnny Cochran, Hunter S. Thompson, Mitch Hedberg, Wax On, Wax Off, Pat Morita, Richard Pryor, Shirley Chisholm, and Johnny Carson. Wow. So it was a, it was a, I don't want to say it this way, but it was a, it was a big death year. And that was, I mean, there were plenty more, obviously, too. So hello, Michigan. It is our first time in your state. So thanks for having us. I guess. Not literally weird, here. It's a weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. We're not actually in yeah. Michigan, first obviously, story in but Michigan. it's our first story in Michigan. So we are going to Rochester Hills, which is about 30 miles north of the largest city in Michigan, which is Detroit. It's a larger city by Midwest standards at about 76,000 people, obviously smaller than Fargo, larger than Minot, where we're from. But I mean, it's, you know, it's not your, your typical Midwestern town. And it was also very, very new. It was established in 1984, which is the year I was born. Diane Michelle was a 50-year-old mom to a 15-year-old Christopher Dankovich. Diane could have been described as a free spirit. She divorced her husband, Christopher's father, James, in 1995. Afterwards, she promptly changed her name from Diane Michelle Dankovich to Diane Michelle. Already a licensed social worker and licensed therapist, she founded the Heartlight Metaphysical Ministry. And in the early 2000s, it's what we would have called New Age. So she was, you know, she was very into the energy world, the, the spirit world, all of that. She was self-described as a psychotherapist, a speaker, a teacher, a trainer, and as well as a minister. Certified in everyone, I'm sure. I, she was, yep. Okay. So Diane was an exuberant woman. She loved purple, dressed in flowy, vibrant colors, and she seemed to be loved by her colleagues and was described as someone who was an angel on earth, very loving and compassionate. Christopher's dad was a chiropractor in Troy, Michigan, which is a very short seven-minute drive from Rochester Hills, because remember, we don't do miles here. We do, we do minutes or hours. So once divorced, his main goal was to be as stable and consistent for Christopher. And by all accounts, they, they had just that. He, you know, they had family support. They, uh, it, it, it worked that way for Christopher, and, and James and Diane seemed to get along pretty well. So they seemed to have a really good... Yeah, they, relationship they post-divorce. Well. They co-parented yeah. well, which is yep. a rarity. Right. Yep. And so they, yeah, they did. They co-parented well. Christopher was a quiet kid. He was, he was respectful and, and very nice. 
And that's how everybody described him. A freshman at Rochester Adams High School. He was a good student with no discipline discipline history. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't getting into trouble. He wasn't the, the typical troubled kid. And just he had the, the love and support behind him. He had even uh, just colored his hair for Sadie Hawkins Day. So clearly, you know, participating in, you know, school events and everything. He wasn't he wasn't antisocial, just quiet. And I think we I think we throw that term around a lot. I, antisocial, you know, because it's it's like, oh, I'm feeling very antisocial today. And, and well, not, not everybody's the type to let me call all seven of my friends or everybody in my in my contact list to make plans this weekend. Some people are happy to chill or wait for someone right. else to call them. So and, the, I, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with being introverted or being quiet. You know, some sometimes people are painfully shy. The world needs wallflowers, too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I like to think I'm an introverted extrovert. Think about that one for a second while I take I, this drink. I think I would disagree with your assessment, but we don't have to go there now. <laughs> it was reported Christopher and Diane had a very close relationship. She referred to him as her doll. In fact, Diane's friends and colleagues described Christopher as the apple of his mother's eye and the center of her world. Her friend, Sheila Becker, also a therapist, said, quote, that son was the apple of her eye. She constantly told me, and, and this is still quote, she constantly told me she thanks God for her son because he was never on drugs or booze. They did everything together. She lived for that boy. I wonder, was, people, she, was it, she thanking God singularly because he didn't do drugs that, and booze? Right. That's is that the, why you're when, thinking? And it was, a good thing, it was but. quoted multiple times. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. That's not typically the, the thing I would lead with. But right. that, that, that implies to me, right. well, I might not have liked him as much if he smoked pot and drank whiskey. Yeah, I, it, it's, it was. He would have been grounded and had a lot less love. I'm hoping. I'm I'm hoping it's one of those things where you know when when media quotes you and, and they're like, hey, can I can you give me some of this information? And then you just start rambling and then you just say things. So I'm I'm really really hoping that uh, Sheila didn't mean to lead with that, but whatever. So Diane had confided in a colleague, a different colleague, that she was concerned Christopher had started to become mouthier, and I think isn't that just what all 15 year olds? Do I mean, boy, my 12-year-old oh does that. Yep. I, I'm still doing it. So what she didn't confide was that her 15-year-old son had recently been looking at porn on his computer, as well as researching guns. And again... Great it, combo. Porn well, and guns. My good... Wow. And, again, but, well, I, and uh, I, think, I think porn is also what 15-year-old boys do. I'm not one, nor have I ever been, but I'm, I'm, I'm told. And, and which, uh, which version of the devil's music was he listening to? Right. Heavy metal or rap? <laughs> right, right. Ex- well, exactly. And there's a, there's a line from the, the West Wing that, uh, you know, they're, they're basically they're saying that if we put this, uh, these sexy things in front of everybody, they're going to start to think about it. And, and the one quote is, is if, we, if a 14-year-old boy looks at a wrench, he's going to think about sex. And it's kind of the same thing here. It's like this, this 15-year-old kid is interested in porn. Oh, my gosh. So surprising. Very normal. Yes. And I should, I should point out that it wasn't clear what his level of interest in porn was. You know, so that should should be taken into account. I mean, was it changing his life? Was it an actual addiction, or was he just a curious, horny little teenager? Look, look, I wouldn't. I'm not. I don't kink shame. So, whatever his flavor was, it's good. It's his. <laughs> the the the. I'm sorry. That's, I wasn't. I wasn't expecting that. That's uh, okay. I wasn't clearly, expecting clearly. a 15-year-old porn maniac in today's episode either. But that's again, the thing is, I don't know if he is a porn not maniac. Not going to judge. Right. Just pointing it out there, right? So the uh, the guns also not that alarming it, it per se, right? 
Christopher was, he, he played paintball with his friends and had recently made a marble gun out of P- PVC pipe, you know, to shoot marbles. So Diane had confiscated that, but she was very, very disappointed and, and hated the fact that he played paintball with his friends. So, you know, again, taking it into context and depending, it doesn't, uh, depending on his interest, it doesn't mean he was, you know, this uh, crazy little gun crazed porn maniac. Well, making a marble gun out of PVC pipe is pretty industrious. Like I, I've, I've seen, saw people make like the potato guns mm-hmm. and things like that, but a marble gun feels, uh, feels a little dangerous. Okay. You That's, can't have, I didn't, I didn't know that. You can't have that. titties and marble guns and expect <laughs> to not be probably end up a killer. Every time I've seen those two things mixed together, murder. Now who's on one? Like you were on one tonight. This is, I'm going to, all right. Well, on April 23rd, Christopher was staying with his dad in Troy, where he decided to run, or when he decided to run away. He cut the screen on his window, and straight out of an after-school special or Full House episode, he climbed down the side of the of the house using knotted bedsheets. Like, who did you escape prison? Like, in Incredible. like 1941? I really only thought that happened in movies where there were cool tree houses right. and quicksand and yeah. knotted bedsheets to escape things. Right. Like, walk out the front door, buddy. I mean, it's it's anyway. Knotted bedsheets. And I don't just, mean to make fun of this kid no, at this point, no. but I, I was just shocked to see that. I'm like, what is this? Like a From porn to marble guns to knotted bedsheets, it's a, it all makes sense. This kid is a is a just industrious. A it's he's yeah. crafty. He's serious. It's, it's very innovative on his part. For sure. Like what do you see that in a cartoon? Like Tom and Jerry? <laughs> not far from home, law enforcement picked him up and brought him back to his father's house. So he did not get very far. But seemingly fed up and most likely concerned, James brought Christopher to his mom's house where they had a family meeting. Diane told James that she was going to ground Christopher for two months and take away his computer. Right? It's parenting. Uh, great, great response. Parenting. Again, great co-parenting response yeah. here to yeah, have a family Yeah, they have a family meeting. meeting. Like, I mean, right. it's, you know, high five both of you. That's, that's, that's good. You know, when you have two responsible adults, you know, that are, are you didn't make it together. So you're, you know, you're doing better apart and you know, keeping your kid in mind. So on Sunday night, the next night, April 24th, James wasn't able to get in contact with Christopher. And then his mother, Diane, when he tried, couldn't get in contact with her either. So James called Diane's mother and when explaining, you know, just how it just seemed a little odd and everything with Christopher, she said that she'd go over and check the house the next morning. On Monday, April 25th, just days before Diane's 51st birthday, her mother went to the two-story brick colonial house in the 3000 block of Palm Air Drive, to find one of the most gruesome scenes law enforcement and prosecutors in the area had ever seen. In the entry of the house, filled with inspirational sayings and angel pictures, Diane's mother would find the mutilated body of her daughter, face down and covered in blood. It was a grim and gruesome scene. What investigators and her autopsy would find is that Diane had been stabbed 111 times. 111 combined stab wounds to her back, her chest, her face, and both eyes. One of her eyes had been stabbed repeatedly enough that it was no longer in her eye socket. Her hands also had numerous defensive wounds. And at the scene, it was clear to investigators it was a drawn-out, furiously aggressive attack. There were two things missing, though. Diane's 15-year-old son and her 1999 Chevy Astro van with the license plate, Love For You. Oh, man, the license plate. That whole scene. And her mom. That is... Yeah. 111 times, 111 never, mi- times. never mind the explosive anger of that. Let's just consider how long it would take to stab somebody 111 times. 
and dragging across the whole bloody house. Man. And, and in someone's face, like someone's, someone's face, that is, uh, you're certainly sending a message at that point. Well, it just gave me goosebumps because you said earlier that she often called her son the apple of her eye. Oh, I hadn't put that together. Yikes. And her one eye clearly got a lot of tragic attention with a knife. Hmm. On the exterior of the house, the fresh snow showed steps in front along with blood drops in the, uh, in the front area of the home. Investigators would also find two knives, one in the house and one outside, both with blood and matter belonging to Diane Michelle. Law enforcement immediately began searching for Christopher. His dad, James, had a hunch he knew where he might be. So just before 2 p.m., arriving in Twin Lakes, Michigan, at his father's cabin, law enforcement found Christopher sporting his freshly shaven head. Clearly, in his blue hair, you know, he had just dyed it for Sadie Hawkins Day, right? And he was clearly hiding. I mean, if you're, if you're altering your appearance, what are you doing? What are you, uh, what are you looking at hiding from, and how long are you going to be hiding? So the th- quiet, thin 15-year-old didn't put up much of a fight when law enforcement detained him. In fact, it was no fight at all. Still a child. I don't think he'd have done much if he had had the chance. But given what he'd supposedly just done to his mother, he certainly shouldn't have been underestimated. I don't know if it's alarming. I don't know if it's creepy. I don't know if it's unsettling. But when they when they got back to to you know with investigators, he hadn't even like he didn't even hide what he had done. He didn't he didn't try to deny it. He simply told investigators that it was him. He told law enforcement that an argument is what caused the gruesome attack. At that point, he was charged with murder and held at the juvenile detention center. So just, yep, I did it. Yeah, nothing about the scene indicates he wanted to hide what happened at all. Nope. He did something terrible and he fled. And so the the odd part, I mean, it's they had hearing after hearing. And he mainly insisted on pleading guilty. So at his arraignment in May 2005, just a month after his mother's murder, prosecutors already knew what the supposed motive was. So Oakland County Assistant Prosecutor Lisa Ortlieb said Dankovich, quote, flew into a rage and committed this horrific crime when his mother confronted him about his interest in guns and pornography. Well, that was easy. Like, hmm, shouldn't be doing these two things. And then he said that they had an argument and that must be what it is. Oddly enough, he never said anything about a motive, though. He never said why he did it. They just had an argument. And so what could possibly cause a 15-year-old child, because he is a child, he, he is simply a child, what would cause that, uh, that, that kind of, or that, that, a person of that age to stab his mother at all, let alone 111 times? The stabbing of someone in their eyes should definitely be a red flag. I mean, more of a red flag than just stabbing them and murdering them, of course. But psychologists say it could indicate punishment or could show something more symbolic. And according to one of the psychologists quoted in the Detroit Free Press, if a victim has been stabbed in the eyes, has, has may have maybe said to someone, in my eyes, you're nothing, or you know, said in my eyes just with some horrific insult, it might be somewhat symbolic if the, the victim was then stabbed in the eye. And of course, this is, that's not saying that that's what she had said or that's what she had told him, but it certainly does paint a, a different kind of picture. If someone removes their victim's eyes, forensic psychologists say the person doing the murdering may have some psychotic and sadistic tendencies, to which I'm like, duh, 
I mean, I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I just wonder where, where those things come from. But if you rip somebody's eye out, you might be psychotic. You, you might. There's, there's a small chance. Just, just maybe. I'm just going to give that a stamp of confirmation. There's no doubt in my mind. It's yeah. Well, and I, and I don't, I don't think you know. Eye stabbers, weirdos. Yes, I, and I, I don't think that he actually intended to remove her eyes. This is, it's feeling like a very gruesome talk, but I, I don't think that happened. I think it was just a byproduct of the rage that, that he, he stabbed her with, or she was stabbed with, you know, because it was just that much force and that much ickiness, I guess. I mean, I, I don't have the time and research with this case that you do, but the apple of the eye thing just sticks with me. And yeah, I the can't fact that, that she, he stabbed her eye to me, there's some, some sort of hostility and resentment. If he's been hearing that, uh, whatever subconsciously brewing hatred for his mother came out and he hated hearing that the apple of the apple, he's in the apple of my eye. Well, I, I don't, I don't, the, the, the phrase that felt ickier to me was, um, he's my doll. That one, that one rubbed me the, the wrong way, but parents are flawed. It's just, it's, it's, we're all human, right? We're just doing the best that we can. Well, she seemed like a sweet lady. You know, right, but. right. But if there is, if there is, this is, you know, me somewhat speculating at this point, but if there's that much rage behind an attack, I don't know. I mean, I think it takes, takes a certain amount of history or trauma that precedes it usually. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to punch somebody, that's one thing, but to stab someone in their face, it's, there's, there's something, there's another layer that nobody is seeing. So Dankovich was interviewed by a psychologist to determine whether or not he was sane. At one of the multiple hearings that they'd, ha- that they'd held, the judge reviewed the report, and it was clear that 15-year-old Dankovich was deemed to be sane, in fact. His attorney felt Christopher struggled with mental health and even pushed for further evaluation before they got to trial. All right, breaking it down, that could just be the attorney's Hail Mary pass, right, where they're like, it's got to be crazy, like, who does this, right? I mean, it's, you know, it could be one of those things. But Christopher was adamant he was not going to trial and wanted to plead guilty. Again, his attorney wanted that trial because he felt that he that Dankovich had a good chance of acquittal because of his mental health issues. In February of, 20, of 2006, Dankovich got what he wanted. His attorney and prosecutors had come to a plea agreement, and he was going to plead guilty to second-degree murder and face anywhere from 22 to 34 years in prison. In a surprising move, the judge rejected the plea deal. Wow. For which, a 15-year-old. Yeah. He was concerned that Dankovich was a threat to public safety. Forgive me if I missed this. Is he being tried? Clearly, he's being tried as an adult here. He is, it's adult time for adult crimes. Okay. So he is, he is being... In- well, in a lot of states, by 2006, had already passed laws that a lot of 15-year-old, no matter the crime, mm-hmm. you could not be charged as an adult. Right. This is right. clearly not the case here. You, nope. And of course, I mean, he's still, he's still at, ju- at the juvenile facility because he is You a, can't put a, a 15-year-old right. in prison population. Exactly. No. Not, not pre-sentence or, or pre, uh, pre-conviction. So in May of 2006, so just a couple of months later, the prosecution and defense reached yet another agreement. And this time the judge was okay with it. So the, his attorney still felt that it should go to trial. And Christopher was still adamant that he wanted to plead guilty. So he did plead guilty to that. And the timing, what he was sentenced to, or what he was looking at was a minimum of 25 years. His maximum would be 37 years. So 
three years. That's why he rejected the, the plea deal. We went from 22 to 34 years versus 25 to 37. The judge rejected so, it. So those, three so years. those, those three years are, you know, if you feel that he's a threat to society, those three years are going to be the make or break it. Like, and to be clear, Dankovich's lawyer wanted him to go to trial. He wanted him to go to trial. Dankovich, yep. the fifteen-year-old, wanted to just plead guilty mm-hmm. and get over with it. Yeah. Yep. So Christopher did take the opportunity, and the only thing that he said at the sentencing hearing was that I'd like to just say how sorry I am for what I did. Because again, what 15-year-old kid is super eloquent and can, you know, put together some long drawn-out apology. It's so the defense claimed that his mother, that Christopher's mother, mentally abused Christopher, which then led to Christopher's mental illness issues. So even with that, you know, they, they, they did take that into consideration. He was sentenced, and the soonest that he will see the light of day is the anniversary of his mother's murder in 2030. That's the earliest that he'll get out. What I found interesting, you're thinking, that's, that's it? That's the, that's the story? It's not, because it, it goes a lot deeper. Uh, he, Christopher has, has spent a lot of his time behind bars writing. He's been published on numerous websites. He's very well written, and from what I can tell, he's trying to raise awareness and bring reform to juvenile sentences and prisoner uh, in prison life. Is there is there any more so that the, the argument was just he was mentally abused and that led him to a psychotic breakdown? That's that's all wow. for that. Okay. Until, so the Marshall Project actually. Uh, And if you're the Marshall Project is a nonprofit journalism organization about criminal justice and and they have uh, they have some clout because if they when they publish things, people pay attention. So Christopher wrote, I'm losing my mind after refusing to plead insanity for murdering my mom. And this article was actually published in collaboration with Vice. So I'm going to actually just read the article because I think that that this is written by Christopher. Wow. It was as if I had been bleached from the room. My six by 10 cell was white. The walls were white. The floor was white and the lights were white, but never dimmed. The only object in the room, apart from the mattress on the floor, was a stainless steel toilet, which reflected the white light. In the courtroom just hours earlier, on May 1st, 2006, I'd received a sentence of 25 to 37 years in prison. The judge reminded me I could change my guilty plea by claiming insanity. I I refused and was removed from the court. Now I was in the pole, which someone had explained to me was a psychological hole. It was a place for protecting me physically from myself. As I sat there, sometimes reflecting, sometimes just staring at the wall, sometimes napping, I began to wonder whether it got its name because it was where they put people who were crazy, or whether it's because this was the place they put people to make them crazy. Was there even a distinction? Apart from when staff delivered meals, I never knew what time it was. There, to the right, was a message written on a window. Quote, 100% Jamaican. It was scrawled in toothpaste and feces. But even if the court had listened to the psychologist, I refused to. Try to imagine being 15 years old and being told that you, your brain, and your conception of reality, and everything you knew, was wrong. There I was, so crazy, I wouldn't plead crazy. When you are alone, truly alone, with no distractions, the only thing you can hear are the whispers of demons. Not real voices, but thoughts that infect your mind, your sense of self, your sense of what is real. What you hear is determined by whether you listen. There's only so much a mind can put up with 
particularly when faced with unlimited nothingness. Is it really possible to drive someone crazy? In such a short time? No, at least not permanently. I could feel it welling up, though. A hypersensitivity at first. I noticed the most subtle, alternating flickering of the white light. On a scale of 1 to 10, it was the difference between a 9.9 and 10. Patterns, faces, and images appeared in the texture of walls next to small stains that I hadn't noticed before, the origins of which I didn't want to consider. Never mind, like, remember, he's 15 years old. I wanted to just remind myself, this is him at 15 writing this, not well, it's, after. It's, this, he, he didn't write this at 15. He, this is later in life, but this is him reflecting on, on, okay. on, his, on, first, on his first time there. Yeah. As I lay there, blanket over my head, pinpricks of light shining through the threads, I imagined scenarios in my mind. There was the girl I used to talk to back in school who I imagined was coming to check in on me and see how I was doing. I imagined meeting my judge again, and this time I could say whatever I wanted to him, some combination of fuck you and please help me. I imagined myself in the hospital where I went around my 11th birthday after my mother, to whose murder I had just pleaded guilty, sucker punched me and threw me headfirst into our living room's glass and wood coffee table. And I saw myself as I was a year earlier when I had been incarcerated in the highest security building of the juvenile detention facility. It was the best and the freest year of my life, having spent the previous 15 and a half years in a house with someone who kept my bedroom window nailed shut and barred me from going outside. Soon, I merely imagined a companion who anesthetized my loneliness, a beautiful girl with a face and a name I could whisper as if she were actually there a person to talk to, to hold, and to hold me. In my solitude, alone and away from my mother and everyone else who could possibly listen or would possibly care, I muttered thoughts to this girl, and I would imagine her responses, sometimes subtly mouthing the words I pretended she'd say. So he was 26 when he wrote this, and, he, and there he talks about the abuse that he endured. He's, he, he's making some pretty serious allegations, and it feels like that should have come up 11 years prior in, in trial is that maybe that's why the lawyer wanted it to go to trial was he wanted. And was he, was he trying to still at this point protect his mother? I mean, just plead guilty. That's a lot to unpack in that letter. And it's hard, it's hard to feel a ton of pity for somebody that did that to their mom. And he's trying to illuminate this situation in such a way that he was faint, facing serious mental anguish and perhaps some sort of abuse in his house. Right, but, I, but, mm. but this is where it becomes controversial, is if someone is physically, mentally, any type of abuse, right, and that, that alters their brain, especially a developing brain, right? So they've got trauma, they have all of this stuff from abuse. Then what happens? Is is he? It's controversial because how do you, how do you actually feel that? Is he actually a threat to society? He feels like a threat. He feels like a threat to society given what happened. But the his target was the person who the he person alleges he said abuses was him. abusing him. Yeah. So he would go on to to write, and he actually writes. It's called. Uh, um, Prisoner blog, I believe I, I'd have to I have to check, but on a completely separate one that I'm actually not reading from. But he writes on it often, and not just about his own things. And and so this this guy is published. And so this is a, an excerpt from the PeripheryMag.com, the article, "The Atrocity of Sunsets: The Death of Childhood in Michigan," written by Christopher Dankovich. And this is lengthy, so I just I, I kind of picked what I felt 
really highlighted some of the issues. And his his dad actually feels that what's healing him is writing and and pointing out the injustices within the justice system and the uh, and, and the the prison system. Is there any any word from his father about Dankovich's allegations toward the mother? Nothing confirmed. He does visit his son about twice a week, though. When you're a child and are charged as an adult with an adult crime, there are many crimes other than murder that will make a 14-year-old a legal adult. The experience is, is far from the movies or a Law & Order episode. There are no safeguards for you. Justice will not seek to understand why the alleged offense occurred, what led up to it, the psychology, reasoning, or capacity of the child perpetrator. If anything, you're considered more dangerous than an actual adult criminal because, quote, how could you be so young and still be capable? But no one will go out of his or her way to find out that answer unless your parents, who again have full legal control over your defense, hire a professional. But that assumes they know, to know how, have the money, the care, and are there. No rehabilitation is sought for you. From the moment the prosecutor decides to charge you as an adult, the only option available to your future is straight hard punishment and suffering. The only thing you can do is try, as a child, to argue against an adult well-versed in the law and whose many years of schooling and experience have gone into beating you to convince him or her that you didn't commit the crime or that you deserve less than everlasting damnation. Your only ally is your attorney, whom you did not hire and could not have since you cannot legally sign a contract and have no legal right to possess your own money. 38% of lawyers representing juveniles face that face a life without parole sentence in Michigan have been publicly sanctioned or disciplined by the Michigan Bar Association. I have a, say that word? Egregious. Egregious. Thank you. It's like, it's like uh, when you say aluminum or elevator, some people, I can't, I can never say. Egregious. Thank you. Violations of ethical conduct. Though in any given year, only about 0.3% of Michigan attorneys are reprimanded in such a way. He continues, the rest of the world, except for America and Somalia, officially recognizes the difference between juveniles and adults in terms of ability to navigate their criminal justice systems and the juvenile's level of culpability regarding their responsibility for crimes they are found guilty of. In America, the mantra repeated by lawmakers and prosecutors who advocate these harsh adult punishments for juveniles is, adult time for adult crimes. This was the title of a Heritage Foundation report which argued that the United States could not be in violation of international human right norms because the U.S. is the only nation that has refused to sign and ratify the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child, which mandates that, here's boring legal jargon, no child shall be subjected to torture or other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. Neither capital punishment nor life imprisonment without the possibility of release shall be imposed for offenses committed by a person below 18 years of age. That says a lot right there. No child shall be deprived of his or her liberty unlawfully or arbitrarily. The arrest, detention, or imprisonment of a child shall be in conformity with the law and shall be used only as a measure of last resort and for the shortest appropriate period of time, which is Article 37. So, that's a lot there. Right. And it's um, and I'm still probably distracted because I can't say that E word. I want to come back real quick to 38 percent of lawyers who represent juveniles facing life sentences in Michigan. It's one in three. I know we're terrible at math on this podcast, but that's a staggering number. If, if the regular number of attorneys is 0.3 percent and he's saying 38 percent, that's a 
very wide margin. So we're saying, well, if you're a juvenile who did some messed up things, we're going to give you a shit lawyer if you don't have any money. And, and he's, a, you, he's you, citing sources that for right. these numbers too. So if, if this these aren't is conspiratorial numbers that he right, just dredged up, right? This isn't Midwest murder math. He is, he is citing sources for it. So I mean, it says it says a lot. So if there is if there is an abuse situation, right? And and he he brings up a good point in my opinion. When you know it's almost worse if a child does these crimes because how can they be so little but yet so still, dangerous, so dangerous, so capable, right? So it makes them more scary, even more. It kind of he's not wrong though. He's he's not. He's not. Look at look at episode two with Nugabauer, right? I mean he he murdered his entire family in a in a fit of rage. So it, it, it just brings up those questions and, and I, I think are, are great thinking points that, that we forget about and that, and that we, don't, we don't recognize in, when we're dealing with a, a case of this, of this magnitude. And the, so then as I was reading this and as I was researching all of this over the last couple of weeks, I, I think why, you know, then why not say something, right? Why not say something when you are, in court and, and, and all of those things. Why, why be so adamant, just like you said a little bit ago, why be so adamant to plead guilty? He's 15 years old. Do, do you think in, in that tiny baby brain that's supposedly been abused, I, I, and I'm not saying either way, I don't know, but do you, do you think that that brain is capable of, of making that decision? Well, clearly he's capable of making the decision to kill. And I wonder if some part of him didn't feel that he had to plead guilty because he wanted to be punished for what he did. I think that there might have been a part of him that said, look, I maybe I am insane and maybe my lawyer can get me a reduced sentence based on some paperwork or a psychologist's review of me. But I, I'm looking at him and his insistence. I just can't help but wonder he wanted that. He felt like he deserved to be guilty. Well, but he wanted he was, also to... Because he was to, maybe scared shitless too. Maybe? I, that I, I don't I mean, know. If, if, yeah. if, if his abuser is dead, who is he scared of anymore? Well, and my, yeah, but, but my that, other no. problem with Dankovich is just evidence that like, where is any evidence in your life? It doesn't mean a lack of evidence does not mean it did not happen. Right. But I do have a problem with a somewhat reasonably functional and capable porn seeking gun loving 15 year old. If you're if you can do all that, if you can make a, a, a Marvel, a, a PVC gun that shoots marble. You're smart enough to reach oh, out no, to a crisis no. center no, or a teacher no, or a no. counselor. You, yes, no, you can. No. Your dad, your grandma. There's a number of people in your life that you can say, hey, my mom is crazy and my life is dangerous. Help me. You don't, you don't no get to say someone's intelligent enough because, no, they I might. I can they, say whatever they, I want no, right yes, now. And I'm simply saying from him to come back 10 years later and offer these mountains of allegations and, and claims against his mother where there's no preceding evidence just from an objective law looking standpoint it doesn't have a lot it doesn't have a strong foundation in the eyes of the law i'll give you i'll give you that one right where it's 10 years later he's coming forth i i will absolutely give you that one but you can't say that just because someone is smart enough to to build a a marble gun with an engineering brain or whatever out of pvc pipe it does not mean that they are emotionally smart enough to reach out for help in the eyes of the law, they are. Well, fair, but is the law wrong? 
And I'm and I'm not saying case, either I, way. I don't think I, so. I honestly, I, don't think so. I honestly, I I don't know how I feel if if he was in fact abused, if he if he wasn't, and this was just I'm pissed at my mom, and you know, <sighs> fuck you, man. Like I I don't I honestly do not know what my opinion is, but we don't get to say that uh, that intelligence is equal to emotional maturity. No, but it's equal it's equal to capability. And he, he was capable to seek something out before murder. There is always a choice before it gets to murder. If you are, was he in danger? Is there any proof in the moment that he killed his mom that he was literally in danger, that his life was in jeopardy in that moment? If it wasn't, then he had an alternative. And if, that's just how the law looks at it. And I, that's fair, but I if, tend to agree. If he was because in we're fact talking about abused, murder here. Right. I, and, in no way am I condoning that, hey, if you're abused, you should totally murder your, your abuser. That's absolutely not. My, my mom was strict. I ripped her eye out with a knife. Right. Like, I mean, is that, is, is that where we're at? Or, or you know, I, I don't, again, I don't, I don't know that, but it's capability. I, I, dis- I have to disagree. I, I will firmly disagree. Yeah. That's my e- stamp of disagreement. Sure. And emotional intelligence and capability, I, I think, are very, two very different things. And Absolutely. at 15, your e- emotional functionality, nowhere near it is because your brain is still developing for another 10 years. I want to come back to his lawyer who wanted him to plead not guilty, which he ultimately didn't. And I, why was the lawyer so insistent on that? Did the lawyer want some fame and recognition and notoriety for being a, a defense attorney in a big time case he already was he already was well known was he he was well known and and it was described in in one of the articles from the detroit free press he he was described as um you couldn't throw a curveball to him that he couldn't hit something to that so so you know was it because he actually felt like his client had a chance you know at acquittal or did he really truly believe that there were mental health issues and even more so, maybe, I mean, did Christopher tell him what if he had, in fact, endured abuse? You don't, you don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised Dankovic didn't try it. But again, I think he wanted the guilt in the end. Yeah. And, and it, it is, and so, I mean, I, I did put that in here. It's, it is unknown as to when he initially claimed, you know, the, the abuse. Was it just 10 years later in the, the article? I, I mean... Don't you think if a 15-year-old child has created such an aggressive, vicious, angry crime that something is underneath that? Some discussion points for you. Resources for today, timeline and events for CNN and Detroit Free Press was my, that was my, that was my source. All of them, lots of articles from the time of the murder to the time of his sentencing. And then the others were, were cited within the, the script. So check out our merch store. You can find the link on any of our social media or it is tpublic.com slash store slash Midwest Murder. Uh, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on whichever platform you find our big podcast on, our Midwest little, Murder. Our little podcast. Our, our medium-sized podcast. How about that? Medium-sized, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a big thanks to uh, everyone who has so far. We do we do very uh, greatly appreciate it. Midwest Murder is hosted by Joan Alanto and Don Palumbo and produced by the Good Talk Network. Today's episode was written by myself. My name is Don Palumbo. Again, thank you. Uh, nice thank you re-intro. so much. Nice re-intro. <laughs> I know. That I was, like yeah, I did that. I did that. I 
was yeah. weird. It was weird. Big I did thanks it. to everyone yeah. who listens. And, yeah. and don't forget, hey, sharing is caring. So if, if, if you like what you're listening to, please do feel free to share it on your social media. Invite your friends. I'm sure we'll be back in this area in the not too distant future. We will. Thank you, Fargo. We got uh, 